It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. For the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called Convictions. In essence, we've been looking through God's word and asking, what are the most basic and fundamental things, convictions that we ought to hold as God's church? So far, we've talked about three convictions. The first one, we are committed to covenant community committed to covenant community. Second, we are ruled by God's word. And last week, we talked about how we are Christ-centered in focus. And so if you've missed any of those weeks, highly recommend going and checking out it on the podcast. And today, we're gonna be talking about two more convictions we hold as God's church here at the Austin Stone. And those are, we are people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are reliant on prayer. Relying on prayer. We're gonna be spending the bulk of our time together on the Holy Spirit and in with prayer being our application. And so first, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. We're gonna be asking three very basic questions, okay? Who is he? What does he do? And how can we experience him? Okay, very, very simple. Who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And how can we experience him. So let's answer the first question. Who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? What we want to do in answering this question is to do a quick theology lesson on the Trinity. I promise to keep it short, short theology lesson. I think it's important for us to do so because when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, sadly, there's so much confusion, right, and even abuse. Um, I remember, I think it was a YouTube video, watching some lady supposedly filled with the Holy Spirit and she had a thing called a holy leg. And so she was in front of the church and she would kick her leg, holy leg this way and all the congregation would fall down on this side and she would come over here and kick her holy leg this way and all the congregation over here would fall down. And, and the question is, why do such things happen? And why do people who claim to know Jesus, claim to be Christians, fall for such things? because there's so, so much confusion on who the Holy Spirit actually is and what he does and how we can experience him. And so let's first look at who the Holy Spirit is by looking at the definition of Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity states that there is one God, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. Let me show you a visual that Christians have been using since the 13th century to describe the Trinity. There are three crucial truths that we need to know about the Trinity. The first one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, okay? So look at the visual. The Father is not the Son, okay? They are separate and distinct persons. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are separate and distinct persons. They each have a distinct center of consciousness. The mistake we make here sometimes is to treat the Father and the Son as persons because it's easy for us to imagine the Father as a person, right? The Son as a person, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we think of the Holy Spirit as just a force or an energy, just an it, Right, somehow that we have access to and we could use in whatever ways that we want. But the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a person. He has all the rights of personhood. You can't just take him and do whatever you want with him. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit teaches. He teaches, he counsels, 
The Bible says that he feels, he can be grieved. He's a person, not an it, and has all the rights of personhood. They are three distinct persons that exist at the same time. It's not God uh, uh, serving in different roles. It's not somehow God the Father morphing and shaping into God the Son, and then later God the Son morphing into God the Holy Spirit. That's actually a heresy called modalism. How do we know that? How do we know they are three distinct persons that exist at the same time? Because we have passages um, that theologians call triadic passages where in a single passage, all three persons of the Trinity can be seen at the very same time. For instance, when Jesus is being baptized, right? Jesus is there, God the Son is being baptized, he's there, you can see, you can see him. And then where's God the Father? It says, the Bible says he's in heavens saying to the Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, while the Holy Spirit is also there descending on God the Son as a dove. And so the first crucial truth, they are distinct persons. Second crucial truth, each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. Notice again the visual. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. It's not as though they each are a third God and when they come together they make up a whole God. God's not a mighty morphin power ranger. They are fully God, okay? Third crucial truth. There's only one God. There's only one God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. One quick verse I would point you to see this is Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And notice there are three persons mentioned here, right? But Jesus doesn't say baptizing them in the names of not in the plural, and not in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in the singular name of. By binding the three in one name, their oneness is being shown, their equality is being communicated. And so logically, this is all very hard for us to comprehend. It seems to go against the very basics of logic, the very basics of math, right? How can one be three? How can three be one? But at the very basic level, it ought to at least show us this one truth that God is not like us. He reveals himself to us, he invites us to get to know him, but he is not a being that is so finite that we can fully grasp him and understand him, fully understand him with our human minds. And so who is the Holy Spirit? He's God, he's God. Okay, but let's go one step further. Why was he necessary? Why was he necessary? You see, you see and imagine God the Father, and you see for sure why you needed God the Son, but who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's God. Why was he necessary? A lot of us, I think, Christians think he's just kind of icing on the cake, that he's just a bonus prize. We don't know what he does. I'm glad we have him, right? Why is he necessary? Jesus, in talking about the Holy Spirit in John 16, says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. He will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Well, what in the world does that mean? How can Jesus say, it's better that I go away so that you can have the Holy Spirit? If God the Father came to you and gave you a choice and he said, you could have Jesus in the flesh forever, right? You could have Jesus in the flesh for the rest of your life or you could have the Holy Spirit. Who would you choose? I think I may 
probably choose Jesus in the flesh. You wake up each morning, he hands you a cup of coffee, he says, first we're gonna have a Bible study, and then let's go tackle the day. That would be amazing, right? But Jesus says concerning the Holy Spirit that it's better that I go away to the Father so that you can have the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? John Owen, an important theologian from back in the 1600s said this. He said that there are three eras in human history. There are three human eras and that in the Old Testament era, the prominent person of the Trinity on display for us to see was God the Father, okay? And that's not saying only God the Father was working in the Old Testament. All three persons of the Trinity are working all the time. What it's saying is that in the Old Testament era, the prominent person of the Trinity on display for us to see was God the Father. In the Old Testament era, prophecies were told about the coming Son, about the coming Messiah, right? But it's not until the early New Testament era that we see that the prominent person on display for us to see is Jesus, God the Son. Right? It's not until we get to the Gospels that we see Jesus, God the Son, prominently being displayed for us to see. But then we get to the church era, the era that began, began in the book of Acts and the era that we are in today. And what we see happening in the church era is that more than ever, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is being put on display for us to see. If you look at the Old Testament, there's roughly about 100 times in which the Holy Spirit is mentioned. But when you get to the New Testament, church era, you see that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 261 times, even though the New Testament is a much shorter book than the Old Testament. Well, what's happening here? What's happening here is that ever since man sinned and rejected God back in Genesis 3, God could no longer be near to us. He was far off because of our sin and because of his holiness. All throughout the Old Testament, as you read, you sense this distance, right? Have you ever read through the Old Testament and you sense this distance, this chasm that exists between God and man, something is not right. That's why people have this notion, the idea of God of the Old Testament. God dwelled far and above us, but the Father was working. He was working all throughout the Old Testament to do what? In order to send us his son. In order to send us his son, and in Jesus, we had a God who didn't just dwell far and above us, but a God, the Bible says, who came and dwelled among us. He came and dwelled among us. And many of us would stop the gospel right there, that Jesus came and dwelled among us. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that he could bring us near to the Father. We would stop the gospel right there, but that would be stopping it too soon. The question is, why did God the Father promise and plan for God the Son to come? And why did God the Son, why was he born to us? Why did he go to the cross for us to pay for our sins and make us a holy people? Why did he do it? He did it so that God would no longer dwell far and away from us. He did it so that he wouldn't even just dwell among us. He did it so that God himself would dwell within us, within us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. God the Father did everything that he did in order to give us his son. And his son did everything that he did in order to give us the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we might know and experience a God who is more intimate and near to us than we could have ever dreamed. That's why Jesus said it's better 
that I go away so that you can have the Holy Spirit. There are so many of you that feel like God is far off, but don't you see, he's been working all throughout human history before the foundation of the world to come nearer and nearer and nearer to you until his very spirit is inside of you. And so again, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. He's God himself that dwells inside of us, inside every believer to show us that he's not a God who is far off, but he's a God who's moved heaven and earth to be near. Next question, what does he do? The Holy Spirit is now with inside of us, inside of you, the believer, to do what? To do what? John 14, 15 through 17, Jesus says concerning the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 16 says that Jesus is going to ask the Father to give us another helper, another helper that will be with us forever. That word helper in the Greek is the word parakletos. Other translations translate it as an advocate or a counselor. It's a Greek word with legal connotations. Jesus is saying that the Father is going to send you another legal advocate, okay? And notice the word another. Not just I will ask the Father and he will send you a parakletos, but I will ask the Father and he will send you another parakletos. Another one like me, he's saying, referring to himself as the first parakletos. We see this clearly in 1 John 2.1. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ the righteous. So there it is that word again, advocate, in verse one. That's the same Greek word, parakletos. The NIV translates it, one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Okay, so what does all this mean? This means that there's a heavenly bar of justice. There's a courtroom in the heavenlies with God the Father sitting as the judge, and each of us standing as the accused with a certain pronouncement of guilt and condemnation because of our sins. But we have a legal advocate. Our first legal advocate is named Jesus. The Son of God is your lawyer, as it were. And where is our, where is our legal advocate, Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father, right? He's at the judge's right hand, and what is he doing? Our advocate has the judge's ear because he's sitting at the judge's right hand. And this is what I used to think that Jesus did. I remember back in college, um, when I first got to college, this was really the first time God got a hold of my life, and, and for the very first time, I was really trying to obey him. I was really trying to obey God's word and follow him. And I remember one of the things that I really wanted out of my life and, and be absolutely done with was pornography. And I remember being tempted and falling into that sin and, and afterwards just feeling terrible, you know, and I would pray and I would ask God, God, will you be merciful to me? Will you be merciful to me? Will you be gracious to me? Will you please forgive me? And I would have some confidence that he would forgive me because God is merciful. But then a few days later, I would fall again and I would pray the same prayer. And then a week later, I would fall again. 
And I would pray the same prayer. God, will you be merciful? Please be merciful. And the more times I prayed that prayer, the less confident I got that he would actually forgive. Because at one point or another, will God run out of his mercy for me? Now I remember having some confidence that Jesus was at God's right hand, pleading for mercy for me as well, but I wasn't ever sure. How could God forever be merciful towards me? I wonder if some of you have asked the same question. But then one day I was listening to a sermon by Pastor Tim Keller, and I realized that this text wasn't saying that at all, and it changed everything for me. Jesus wasn't up there asking God to be merciful to me. I remember Pastor Tim Keller saying in the sermon that you have to realize what a legal advocate does. He said that if Jesus is your legal advocate, he's not up there pleading for mercy. A good lawyer doesn't plead for mercy. A good lawyer makes a case. Each time you and I sin, Jesus isn't at the right hand of the judge pleading for mercy. He's making a case based on the law. He's making a legal case for why you should not be condemned. And what is that legal case he's making? Jesus is saying to God, our judge, yes, Father, your character demands justice, and these people have sinned against you, and the wages of sin is death, but I've paid for it. I've paid for it. Justice demands that you never condemn all those that I've died for. You cannot take two payments for the same sin. Do you see why that changes everything? When we sin, after we've sinned, we don't have to nervously go before God asking him over and over again to be merciful, to be gracious. Do we need mercy? Yes. Do we need grace? Yes. It's because of God's mercy and grace we have the cross in the first place. But because we have the cross, we can ask for more than mercy. We could ask for more than grace. We can go boldly to his presence and ask for justice. Can you imagine this? You've just sinned and you go before God and you say, God, I've sinned. Now will you give me justice? And what does God giving you justice look like in light of the cross? Justice means forgiveness for you because Jesus paid the debt. Justice, God giving you justice because of your sins means forgiveness and reconciliation for you. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the legal advocate you have in Christ. We're not simply appealing to the grace of God. We appeal to the justice of God. God isn't simply tenderly forgiving you because he's merciful. He's ferociously forgiving you because he's just. And that is exactly what 1 John 1.9 says. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it doesn't say he is faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins. It doesn't say he is faithful and loving to forgive us of our sins. Of course he's merciful, of course he's loving, but that's not what it says. It says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Jesus, our legal advocate, is at the right hand of the judge arguing an open and shut case, an indestructible, impenetrable case to his father to judge for why we can't be condemned as sinners. Do you see why Romans 8 is so bold in what it's saying? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why can it be so bold? 
Because it's not just based upon God's mercy, it's based upon God's justice. It's based upon the totality, the fullness of who he is. You might be saying, okay, all of that is great and amazing, but I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit. Yes, all of that to make the point that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is another parakletos. He's another parakletos. He's another legal advocate that we are given. We are given, we're not just given one legal advocate, but we have two. When it comes to our standing trial as sinners, we don't just have one lawyer, we have two. And so think about this. If Jesus is at the right hand of the judge making a legal case for us, where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the Holy Spirit? Not up there by the judge, but he's here next to you, with inside of you, in your heart, next to you. And each time when we sin and Jesus is making a legal case to God, he's saying, Father, remember, I paid for that sin, that sin too. I took up the cross, obeyed your will, the fullness of your wrath against that sin has been poured out on me. Father, forgive, justice demands that you forgive. Just as strongly as Jesus is making his case to God the Father at his right hand, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, inside every believer, making a legal case to you as you're sinning, as you're being tempted to sin. He's saying to you, you're not that person anymore. He's saying your old self has been buried and crucified with Christ. He's saying legally you are no longer slaves to sin and death. He's saying you are no longer bound to sin. You've been legally set free. You've been legally adopted as his children. He's saying to you, you are God's rightful son. He's saying to you, you are God's rightful daughter. That thing that you're doing, that person that you're dealing with, you are no longer that person. Don't you see? The Holy Spirit is with you within you, making a legal case to you that you are no longer who you were. You are God's child. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What this text is saying is that our hearts are filled with fears. And the greatest fear of all, you know what the greatest fear that you have is as a believer? The greatest fear that you have as a believer is that at the end of the day, you don't measure up. The greatest fear that we have as a believer, is that at the end of the day, sin does separate. And that God does run out of mercy. And that at the end of the day, you won't be found as God's son. That you won't be found as God's daughter. But look at verse 16. It says that the spirit himself bears witness, it says. That's legal language again. What is he legally bearing witness to you about? From before the foundation of the world, God the Father, he has planned and he has worked in order to give us his son. And his son, he has lived and he has worked, he has gone to the cross so that you might have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now dwells within you to do what? To bear witness, it says. 
to bear witness to you, and he's telling you over and over and over again, strongly and loudly and as clearly as he can, he's telling you this one truth. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You're his brave son. You're his precious daughter. Some of you, you really need to hear this. You've heard it all the time, but you need to hear it from the bearing witness of the Holy Spirit. He's saying to you, even right now, you are wanted. You are loved. God has chosen you, and Jesus has paid a great price for you so that you might be his son, so that you might be his daughter. And when we say this conviction that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, what we mean is that this truth, if it truly settles within your heart, it makes you unshakable and indestructible in this world. It empowers you. How does it empower you? What is that sin you're dealing with? What is that habitual sin that's been in your life and you're thinking, I can't get rid of this? I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. But when the Holy Spirit finally takes a hold of you and he bears witness to you and he convinces you, you are God's child. You're no longer that person anymore. You can put to death any sin. What is the level of obedience God is calling you to? When that truth, when that incredible truth finally takes a hold of you and you finally begin to realize, I am God's son, I am his daughter, you begin to realize you can pursue any level of obedience. Any level of obedience without any fear. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Over and over again, strongly and as powerfully as he can, so much so that he's called the spirit of adoption. That's what he's called, because that's what he does. He's given to you forever, so that you might know forever you are God's child. And the last question. How can we experience him? Or asked in another way, how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? You've heard that before, right? How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? When you think about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Bible teaches about what he primarily does, we have to realize that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some strange thing. It's not some silly or crazy thing. There are charismatic movements that have so moved away from what the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is and, and what he does. You have people running up and down the aisle of a church barking, and they call that filled with the Holy Spirit. You have people laughing uncontrollably, whooping, whooping and hollering in the middle of church, and, and they call that being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see people being slain in the Holy Spirit. All of that is silliness at best and demonic at worst. The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to pass out. He wants you to be awake. He wants you to be sober-minded. He wants you to be fighting sin and pursuing obedience as God's children. He doesn't want you to pass out. Only time the Spirit, Holy Spirit caused people to pass out was in judgment. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you and remind you of all that Jesus taught. Okay? It's a sober-minded thing. It's an awake thing. That's the Holy Spirit's main role, to point us to Jesus and showing us how it is that sinners like us got to be God's children, right? Because you're being told this truth, you are God's child, but because we sin, because we keep falling into the same sins, we keep asking the question, I can't be God's child. How in the world can I be God's child? The Holy Spirit points you to Jesus. He points you to his work. He points you to all that he taught, 
And he says to you, this is how you became God's child. A precious price was paid for you, don't you see? And he who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things as his children? And in doing so, God makes us look more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit, in doing so, produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just having some heightened spiritual or emotional experience. If you go through some emotional or spiritual experience and you don't see that, you're any more kind afterwards. If you don't see that you're any more gentle, loving, or faithful afterwards, then it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It wasn't. If you go through some spiritually heightened encounter, but you're not reminded, you weren't reminded of who Jesus is and what he, was, what he taught us, if you weren't pointed to the person of Jesus, I don't know what happened to you, I just know it wasn't the Holy Spirit. So how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? I wanna close by telling you one of the primary ways we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the primary ways that we can know and experience the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is through prayer, It's through prayer. Another one of our convictions as God's church at the Austin Stone is that we are reliant on prayer. If you look through God's word over and over and over again, it talks about how we are to pray in the Spirit. And I think the reason why it says that is because if one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind you over and over again, bear witness to you that you are God's child, well, there's no place quite like prayer where you get to experience that reality, that you, in fact, are God's son, that you, in fact, are God's daughter. You know, as I look at our church, one of the most incredible things that God is doing in our church is he's moving in the hearts of our people to adopt, to adopt. And I think it's one of the most clearest ways that we can demonstrate the gospel to one another, to the world, right, through adoption. Angela and I adopted our son Ben almost two years ago, and it's been incredible. We're crazy about him, but he also drives us crazy. You know, it's both, okay? And some of you know what that's like. And sometimes it's incredibly difficult. And the times when it's most difficult for me is when I'm tempted to treat our son, Ben, differently than the rest of our kids. The times when I feel most guilty is when I'm doing all the outward things, but I know in my heart all the emotions and the affections aren't quite there. And so Angela and I pray all the time, God, will you bind our hearts to Ben, and will you bind Ben's heart to ours? And one of the primary ways that God has been answering this prayer to us is by reminding us, reminding me, that I'm his adopted child. I'm his adopted child and how he treats me in light of the fact that I'm adopted. When you look at the scriptures and you see Jesus praying, you get the sense that immediately God is bending his ear and listening, right? When you go through the scriptures and you see Jesus praying, do you have any doubts? Oh, God's probably not listening. No, anytime Jesus is praying, you get the sense that God is immediately bending his ear and he's asking, what is my son saying? What does he need from me? Anytime Jesus speaks, God is ready to explode into action. Why? Because that's his son. Because that's his child down there. When Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, what were the first words? He said, pray in this way. 
our Father. Our Father. What's he saying? He's saying the Father, he's my Father, but he's your Father too. He's saying that's my Father, but that's your Father too. And if earthly parents know that it's wrong to treat adopted children differently, God knows it incomprehensibly more and you are his adopted child. Romans 8:16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because you are God's adopted child, it says you are fellow heirs with Christ. It doesn't say you're a lesser heir. It doesn't say you're a second class heir. It says you're a co-heir, a fellow heir. What does that mean? That means because you are God's adopted child, you get what Jesus gets. Do you believe that? And when Jesus went to God in prayer, what happened? He got God. Some of you are thinking, man, when I go to prayer, I just don't feel like he hears me. I just feel like he's far away. I want to really meet with him and talk with him, but I just don't think he wants to meet with me or talk with me. It's just simply not true. And if you're saying it's true, understand that you're saying something about God. You're saying he's an evil father who treats his adopted children differently. Sure, he meets with Jesus in prayer, but not me. God is not an evil father. He is a good father. He's adopted us as his child. He's made you a co-heir with Christ. And because of that, you get what Jesus gets. Because God met Jesus in prayer. He's going to meet you in prayer. As soon as those words come out of your mouth, Father, Abba, Daddy, God immediately bends his ear down to you and he's paying attention. He's saying, what is my son saying? What does my daughter need from me? And he's ready to explode into action. Why? Because you're his kid. You're his child. The Holy Spirit leads us over and over to prayer because there's no place quite like prayer where we get to experience this incredible reality that you, in fact, are God's son. You, in fact, are God's daughter. You're asking me, I'm God's son, I'm God's daughter. How can I experience that truth? Go to God in prayer. He'll meet with you. There's a video that we have for you about prayer. Let's watch it together. 